This is from uh, Ajahn Chah, who is a, um, a Thai, Thai monk in uh, northern Thailand, who was my teacher's teacher. He said, the heart of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Give up clinging to love and hate. Just rest with things as they are. That is all I do in my own practice. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing. Resist nothing. Of course, there are dozens of meditation techniques to develop samadhi and many kinds of vipassana. So samadhi is concentration and vipassana is clear seeing or insight. But it all comes back to this. Just let it all be. Step over here where it is cool out of the battle. This is always a wonderful way to start. Of course, I'm, pro- I'm sure that it kind of messes up the mind too, right? Because we're here wanting to do something maybe wanting to get something, maybe wanting to become something, maybe wanting to be something. And so when we get the instruction to let go of all of that, it, gets, it might confuse the rational mind. But meditation is not um, really about engaging the rational mind. It's also not getting rid of the rational mind just letting things be as they are. So if the mind is going a little crazy, that's okay. If the mind is calm and cool, that's okay too. So our practice is a practice of stepping into here where it's cool so that the fire that we're constantly fanning, the flames that we're constantly fanning, become like embers. They're not quite so uh, um, raging. And the rational mind is the mind that wants it to be a particular way, wants it to look a particular way, thinks it knows best. And sometimes it does. But most of the time, trust me, (laughs) it doesn't. There There is a place in the heart that truly does know things as they are, that has all of the wisdom that we need to employ in living our lives in a way that's meaningful, in a way that brings us happiness rather than suffering. So it's always good when we sit, when we begin to sit, rather than jumping into sitting, to reflect on why we're here. What it is that is truly supportive, kind, compassionate, loving, wise, 
wisdom that comes from our natural birthright as human beings. Not the wisdom that we think we have to make happen, but allowing in a generous way as much spaciousness as we can within the mind, the heart, and the body to allow that wisdom to emerge. The wisdom that is already there. Because as human beings, we do have that innate ability to know what is true. And so meditation is about allowing the wide and open spaciousness that shows this wisdom. And just watch how the mind thinks, no, no, I can, I can make things happen. I can make things, I can figure it out so that uh, something, what, what I want to happen will happen. But if you look at your life, you'll notice that the, the places in your life where it's been most fruitful, most helpful, are the times when there have been delightful surprises. Ways in which we think life could never unfold, and it has. So it's good to, to reflect before we even begin to try to make something happen, to understand what it is we're doing here. We may feel a lot of stress and tension in our lives. And of course, we want to lessen that. It's natural. And there's nothing wrong with that. And yet meditation, beyond the lessening of stress and tension, has the potential, if we practice it diligently, and we practice it deeply, not superficially, but profoundly. It has the potential to open up in all kinds of delightful and surprising ways the beauty that we are. There's a, the capacity for transformation that is aided by uh, our ability to allow things to settle in, to settle down, to allow the beauty of silence to pervade this mind and body and heart. And so can you rest now in this cool place of space and light. Whatever is happening in our lives, we may be in a period of great joy. We may be in a period of great sadness. That's how life is. Can we rest in it? Whatever it is, however it is. Letting go of the stories 
and simply knowing what it's like to be a human being sitting on our seat, taking the seat. Are there any questions about uh, meditation practice itself? Hi, what's your name? Nico. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. So Bhante Gunaratana is a very deep practitioner. It's his book, right? Um, don't worry about it. States of concentration are really wonderful in the sense that when we, when we practice in a sustained way for a period of time, the mind does settle down and it has, they're called jhanas, they're degrees of uh, concentration that, uh, you know, come up in a quite... Um, orderly way. However, if we try to get those states of concentration, they elude us. So I know that there are teachers who teach particular um, strategies and uh, modalities for attaining jhanas. My experience has been that whenever I try to do that, it never happens. As a matter of fact, what then starts to happen is I feel a kind of grasping and wanting, and that becomes like the the main feature of the meditation. And, you know, there's some value to seeing that too. So there's value. Whatever arises in meditation, there's value if we're mindful of it. However, if we just are diligent about paying attention, paying attention, and paying attention despite all of the things that pull the attention away from this moment, eventually the mind does settle down. It does become concentrated, and perhaps even those states of jhana, there are eight of them, uh, four of them world, unworld, worldly and four of them unworldly. Uh, they will arrive. And then what is to be seen through those uh, deep states of concentration will be seen. And so Bhante is uh, expressing his own insight, which of course is helpful, but may, if you take it too much as something that needs to happen, may become a, an obstacle to the very thing happening. Do you understand? So, um, I, that would be my advice, is to just do your practice. And it's fine to, to, to do all of this reading and to understand that there are levels of depth in meditation and in, in some ways, I think, you know, we'll never plumb the very depths of it. Uh, because I, I think that it might be helpful in terms of a 
spur to practicing, but the moment it becomes a way of grasping at something or wanting something to happen or thinking, you're, or, or even worse, thinking that your meditation isn't good enough because that's not happening, then that becomes a real obstacle. So I hope that's... Okay, great, good, good. So what I'd like you to do is to really notice what that feels like. So it's not that it's going to disappear, it's that you're afraid it's going to disappear. So now a new state of heart and mind have, have arisen, has arisen, which is fear and grasping and wanting that to stay. It's helpful, I think, to know that every moment, whatever arises in every moment, has value in that moment. And in the next moment, that very same solution that you got the moment before, the next moment it may not be appropriate. It was appropriate in that moment, but it may not be appropriate. But what you can, what you can have some faith in, and deep faith, I think, comes the more you practice, is to have a deep faith in the state of mind and body that arise as a result of meditation. That's what you have faith in. Not so much in the solutions that the mind may be presenting. Right? And I was listening to a wonderful um, interview this morning with Arthur Zanik, who's um, the, the new, well, I guess it's been about a year, the new president of the Mind and Life Institute, the Dalai Lama's Mind and Life Institute, where you know, he's in partnership with scientists. And Arthur, he's a tremendous and wonderful scholar and scientist and meditator. And he was, uh, he was talking about uh, science as something that even scientists think that somehow you, there's a way in which you start out with a rational premise and then you think your way into how to prove it or how to achieve it or how to find it or how to understand it. But he was talking more about the aha moments, right? That there is a way in which when we establish um, this state of mind that, and, and heart that meditation establishes with stillness and silence, that those aha moments arrive. And they arrive not as a result of the thinking or rational mind, but as a result of the partnership of the thinking and rational mind with this state of mind and heart and body. And so as we sit in uh, um, formal meditation, those aha moments may become very clear to us because there's a spaciousness in which it arises and it's very clear. And so we think, ah, aha, right? That's the solution to that. And we think, oh God, I'm going to forget it because in the next moment when I come out of meditation and the mind starts, you know, pinging again, we think, oh, we're going to lose it because we won't have that clarity. But what I have found in my own practice 
is that as a result of all of these hours of sitting on the cushion, whether it's in retreat or at home or um, on the subway or walking or whatever it is, that as a result of that, the mind does become clear. And the intuitive sense becomes strong. And because that intuitive sense becomes strong, those aha moments happen when they need to. Not before and not after, but when they need to. And then we can act on them with some confidence. But we don't need to hang on to them. Because the next moment is going to be the space and the opportunity for the next aha. And that aha is a product of that moment, not a product of 10 minutes ago. But it's an accumulation of 10 minutes, 9 minutes, 8 minutes, 7 minutes, 6 minutes, 5 minutes, 4 minutes, 3 minutes, 2 minutes, 1 minute ago. So there's nothing, it's like life is a river that's constantly flowing. Who is it? The um, poet Heraclitus said that we can never step into the same river twice because it's a constant flow. And to understand how, as human beings, we're constantly wanting to freeze that which is forever flowing. And think, ah, this moment, that's the moment. This is the moment I want for the rest of my life. Oh, stinks. Right? We don't want, we don't want the same moment in the next moment. We want this new moment to be fresh and new and all of the insight and the intuition and the aha and the mystery of every moment to belong to its moment. You're welcome. So if you come up with a solution, if it's the right solution, the mind isn't going to let it go because that intuitive sense is going to keep it. And the very holding on and grasping to it is, is, will make it stale because you're not even giving it the opportunity to develop. You know, that first moment may be just like the germ of something really amazing and mysterious. But if you hold on to it, it can't unfold. It can't evolve. It can't transform itself. It can't move and flow and shift and become fully what it needs to be. You're welcome. Last one. Sit up straight, sit up straight. Yeah. I don't Who's, want to sit up straight. Whose voice is it? Um, I don't know, all the people that... Um, is it your mom? Is it your dad? Is it? Yeah, my mom. <laughs> <laughs> How did I know that? <laughs> so I don't know. I feel like, and I res- it's like there's part of me that resists that, and I feel like I'm not sitting, I'm like stuck in the past. Mm-hmm. So how does your body feel right now? Feels okay. Does it feel like it's slumping or does it feel like it's upright? Feels a, a little slumped. Mm-hmm. How does it? How would you say it looks? It looks pretty good to me. Yeah. So that so it's interesting, right? Because yeah. there, there's the difference between the actuality of anything, including the erect nature or or slumped nature of your body, and the perception of it. Right. Right. And 
there is something about using the body as the template for the mind, right? Because the body holds everything. The, everything is in ourselves. Our, you know, all of our experiences are in ourselves. All of, all of um, our emotions are in our body and cells. So the body is a really kind of temple to our practice. And so the recommendation that you have an erect posture is really, for me, a, a, a recommendation that the mind is upright, the mind is erect. It's not, you know, we're not like slumping and falling asleep. And so there's value to it. And I practiced a little bit in the Zen tradition and my husband and I went to Japan and sat with Oroshi and it was very valuable. And I'll tell you the story. My husband said to the Roshi, and this was several years ago, how long have you been practicing? And the Roshi said, well, I've been practicing since I was five. Right? And he, had, he had, had just this glorious posture. He was tall and beautiful and had these gorgeous robes on that were very distracting when I was trying to meditate. <laughs> and you know how it is. I see all the women laughed. Um, <laughs> and uh, my husband said to him in, at the time, he, he was having a hard time sitting cross-legged. And uh, actually, when we were, before we were talking to him, when we were sitting with him, he tapped my husband on the shoulder and um, pulled him over to a well so he could sit kind of here with his legs down in the well, which I thought was really kind, right? And then uh, when my husband said to him, how long have you been sitting? He said, and he said he was on, since he was five, my husband said, well, you know, I'm hoping that the more I sit, the easier it will be for my legs to be crossed. And the Roshi said, sit on a chair. Again, another kindness, right? So we have to deal with the body we have, right? And for some of us, it's possible to sit in a way that is really easeful with the body erect and looking really great, right? And for others of us, because of the way our bodies are or the habits that we have, it's not quite so easy. So it's not like one size fits all, at least in our tradition. And we give the instructions for an upright body, mainly to use it as a template uh, for how the mind is, that the mind is alert and relaxed. So, f you know, the Buddha's path is the middle way. So in everything, we find the middle, we find the balance. So when the body is like this, we sit upright. When the body is tending to be overstretched and tense and tight, we relax. And so we find for our own purposes a way in which the body feels energetic and also feels at ease, right? And what's really important, Michael, is that you not criticize and judge yourself for however it is. Because the practice of meditation is really a practice of kindness. So we're developing and cultivating kindness while we're developing attention 
and um, mindfulness. Kindness is very much a part of mindfulness. So however the body is, we accept it and we appreciate all that it does for us. And we don't become like taskmasters for it. But at the same time, we also appreciate the template quality of it uh, for the mind. Does that help? My husband wanted to sit on a cushion, by the way, despite the Roshi telling him to sit on a chair. (laughs) Didn't you? But now he's sitting on a chair. (laughs) Yeah, I want to give a, I want to talk to this morning about generosity and giving. And I'm particularly interested in it. I've become really interested in it over the years. Um, Generosity or Actually, the word for generosity is in Pali is chaga. Dana is the word for giving. And I like the fact that there are two different words for it. And I've become interested in it as a practice and as a teaching. Um, because I think that even though it's not part of the Eightfold Path, it, it's, it's not officially... Uh, any of the ways in which the Buddha taught uh, as a direct path to insight, that essentially it it underlies the entire path. And as a matter of fact, it's said in the scriptures that when the Buddha, when someone came to the Buddha and did not yet consider him a teacher, their teacher, he would teach them he would give them teachings on generosity uh, before he gave them any kind of teaching about the actual practice of meditation or about uh, the the deeper insights that can come as a result of, of meditation. And so that's kind of tweaked my interest in in the practice of generosity, the practice and the practice of giving. Because uh, the, the more I reflect on it, the more I realize that it really does underlie and support everything else that we teach and practice. Everything that we reflect on without generosity, without the understanding of generosity and the connection that it has to giving, that it's almost impossible for the teachings to really Um, hit at the level that Nico and I were talking about, um, that deepening level of insight and understanding cannot come to a heart that's closed. They can't come to a heart that's stingy. They can't come to a heart that doesn't yet appreciate the interconnectedness of this world and the need for us to support each other through a, a really um, generous heart that creates the spaciousness and the openness that allows the teachings to fall in. And there's a, I'm going to mess it up a little bit, but you'll get the gist. There's a story about um, a rabbi and his young student who talked, to, and the rabbi talked about um, placing 
uh, the teachings that he was giving his students on their heart. And the student asked, well, asked, well why, do you, um, why do you place the teachings on the heart and not in the heart? And the rabbi said, because your heart will break, and that is the time for the teachings to fall in. And so there's something, there's a connection that I feel texturally between um, the teachings, the, the very profound teachings that the Buddha has given about suffering, the nature of suffering, and the end of suffering, and the path to the end of suffering, and this quality of generosity that we are asked to cultivate, and that the way Onika talked about us um, uh, running the center on the principle of generosity, that it's not a, it's not a kind of um, separate or divorced idea from the teachings that we actually offer. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an invitation to, um, to look into one's own heart in terms of all of those sticky places, all of the places in which we can't let go. Because actually when the teachings, when you, when you look at the teachings themselves, what they really come down to that simple place of letting go. So there's a quality of, this quality of generosity, of the heart of generosity, really weaves through all of the teachings that we teach here. And if we, if we don't get the teachings on generosity, if we don't hear them, and we don't reflect on them, and we don't then take them out into our lives as a way of practice, then the, the, the practice itself is incomplete. And, and we may wonder why there's no transformation happening through our hard work and dedication to the practice. And if, and if that's the case for you, you may want to really listen very carefully to the teachings on generosity and study up on it. And more importantly than listening or studying is practicing. Because in all of these practices, whatever practices you hear about, you learn about, if you just sit and say, oh, that's a great teaching. I love that teaching. That's really wonderful. Thank you so much. You're so articulate. Wow, thank you. I hadn't thought of it that way. And then you go out into the world and you live exactly the way you've been living without having these teachings fall into your heart and transform it, it's of no damn good to you. So I want you to really listen carefully to this teaching on generosity because it's seminal. It's really, it's uh, indispensable to the practice of the Eightfold Path. It underlies it, it supports it, it's the foundation of it. And speaking of letting go, these are from Ajahn Sumedho, who is another of my teachers. He says, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. 
rather than try to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Madhyamika and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana and Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words. Let go, let go, let go. That's six. You see ours is the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, so we only have these simple poverty-stricken practices. So what is this practice of letting go and where does it come from? It comes from love. It comes from love. Martin Luther King said, I am convinced that love is the most durable power in the world. It is not an expression of impractical idealism, but of practical realism. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, love is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. We're not a community-centered culture, that's for sure. There are no natural reinforcers of a sense of belonging. And I think in a way, this absence of a sense of belonging is one of the most invisible and um, most insidious reasons for the dysfunctionality in our society. We can feel the separation and the separateness and even the language of our politics and the language of our media is so much about separateness and our individual power. You know, in a way, it's like democracy gone mad. This idea that, you know, we're in charge, we're the boss, we're the ones who are going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. If you're, if, and if you're not doing it, you're lazy or you're not worthy. I heard a, a, an interview the other day on NPR with a, someone who'd written a book about poverty and the American uh, attitude towards it. And he said, of all of the developed countries, we, have the, we in America have the least empathic language with respect to poverty. 
and that we have the highest tolerance for it. So we tolerate greater degrees of poverty in our society than any other developed country. That made me feel so sad and somewhat ashamed. Because what that means is that we have a culture that does not value love. We have a culture that values self-importance, self-centeredness, and as the Tibetans call it, self-cherishing. And what that promotes is this, un- this idea that if, there's, if I'm going to get mine, that means you've got to get less. that there isn't this, there's this understanding or this idea of a universe that is scarce, that is full of scarcity, and a complete lack of understanding of the total abundance of the universe in which we live. Not only that, but that we in America live in, a, in, a, in an island of prosperity, and opportunity and relative safety in this world in which most of the people in the world don't feel safe. Many of whom have no access to water and food and housing and clothing and proper medical care. So our, our feeling of scarcity is a product of the mind. It's not a product of our reality. In fact, it's a proven uh, fact that we, have, we, make, we grow enough food all over the world to feed every single being in this world. And yet, there are silos full of food that are there to keep the price of certain commodities up. And we can't ignore this. We can't, as practitioners, think it's okay to simply recede into our small worlds of me and I and mine and my ambition, and my needs, and my desires, and my wants, and my, all of the endless ways in which we make ourselves suffer through this wanting, wanting, wanting that doesn't let in the understanding of how corrosive that state of heart or mind is. So we can, as Ajahn Sumedho says, develop this amazing scholarship in the Dharma. Or we can listen to the Dharma and say, this is really wonderful, I am so glad I'm in this company of people who really appreciate the importance of a kind heart and clear seeing. 
But if we continue with the conditioning, and it's not our fault that we're conditioned in this way, and yet at the same time, each of us contributes to the cultural conditioning. So, we, so the, the, the heart and mind of the culture can't change if individual hearts and minds don't change. The transformation that's necessary for the culture will happen heart by heart by heart by heart. And we can't wait for everybody else to do it. When we walk into a place like this, what we're really acknowledging is the responsibility that we have in our own lives. Yes, that's absolutely right. And at the same time, the responsibility we have as citizens of one of the most prosperous cultures ever known in history. And if we li- when we listen to the Dharma, we also understand the dark side, the shadow side of that which is how greed, hatred, and delusion, which is what the Buddha taught as the causes of suffering, come with alongside this great prosperity. And, I, and when I talk about prosperity, I completely understand that there is a full segment of our society that does not participate in that prosperity. So I'm not assuming a kind of general prosperity that raises all boats. I understand totally what the um, Occupy Wall Street people were trying to broadcast as a message. So it's really quite astounding that we are completely responsible, each of us, for how the world is. We're not separate from it. This is from Vimala Takar, who was the, um, she was an Indian woman who J. Krishnamurti chose as his um, heir to his teachings. And she, I recommend her Greatly, she's a beautiful, she was a beautiful being who did some amazing writing. And she said, it's not sufficient that a few in society penetrate to the depths of living and offer fascinating accounts about the oneness of all beings. What is necessary in these critical times, and she lived in the 20th century, is that all sensitive and caring people make a personal discovery of the fact of oneness and allow compassion to flow in their lives. When compassion and realization of oneness becomes the dynamic of human relationship, then humankind will evolve. We are suffering throughout the world in the darkness of the misery we have created. By believing in the fragmentary and the superficial, we have failed to live together in peace and harmony. And so darkness looms very large on the horizon. It's in such darkness that common people such as you and I feel the urgency to go deeper, to abandon superficial approaches that are inadequate, and to activate the creative forces 
available to each of us as expressions of wholeness. The vast intelligence that orders the cosmos is available to all. The beauty of life, the wonder of living, is that we share creativity, intelligence, and unlimited potential with the rest of the cosmos. If the universe is vast and mysterious, we are vast and mysterious. If it contains innumerable creative energies, we contain innumerable uh, creative energies. If it has healing energies, we also have healing energies. To realize that we are simply, we are not simply physical beings on a material planet, but that we are whole beings, each a miniature cosmos. Take that in. Each related to all of life in intimate, profound ways should radically transform how we perceive ourselves, our environments, our social problems. Nothing can ever be isolated from wholeness. We are not just flesh and bone or an amalgamation of conditionings. If this were so, our future on this planet would not be very bright. But there is infinitely more to life, and each passionate being who dares to explore beyond the fragmentary and superficial into the mystery of totality helps all humanity perceive what it is to be fully human. Revolution, total revolution, implies experimenting with the impossible. And when an individual takes a step in the direction of the new, the impossible, the whole human race travels through that individual. This is not a new idea. We understand deeply, especially if we've been studying and practicing and reflecting on Dharma, we understand deeply the interconnected nature of being human. We, can't, we couldn't live on this planet. One single human being couldn't survive here. Not for very long. We need each other. And so the generous heart from which giving comes is worthwhile to develop and cultivate and practice and strengthen. And if that's the only practice we did, which is figuring out where to give, to be fully aware and alive, with what is happening around us in terms of other beings and what they need. If that's the only practice we did, we would become enlightened. Of course, it's strengthened by the, the practice of meditation which allows us to be present. When we're present, we observe, we see, we understand. When we're present, our heart opens. There's a spaciousness that happens in the heart. But do we allow that spaciousness and that openness to overcome the fear? It's not enough. I need it. I must have it. If I don't have it, I don't know what will happen. My whole life will fall apart. 
Now, we have to work with the ungenerous heart because that's what we've been taught. We've been taught it's not enough. There's not enough for everybody. We've been taught that we have to get ours because nobody's going to give it to us. We've been taught fear. We've been taught hatred in many ways. Today is the um, anniversary of the bombing of the church in Alabama during Martin Luther King's time, where four young girls were killed. We have myriad myriad examples in the media of ungenerosity. We don't have a whole hell of a lot of um, examples about generosity or the benefits of it. But there's hope. Ariana Huffington. <laughs> Philosophers have known for this, known for centuries that no one can live happily who has regard for himself alone and transforms everything into a question of his own utility, wrote the first century Stoic philosopher Seneca in his moral letters to Lucilius. And in practically every religious tradition and practice, giving of oneself is a key step on the path to spiritual fulfillment. Or, as Einstein put it, only a life lived for others is a life worthwhile. She actually wrote this amazing, on my, on my computer, it was eight pages, which she said, empathy, compassion, and giving, which is simply empathy and compassion in action, are the building blocks of our being. With them we flourish, without them we perish. And she goes into all of the science that are, where the, the mind-life scientists are now showing us that a life of compassion is a life that is much happier and with much less suffering. They're doing all kinds of studies about people who volunteer and overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, they get over depression. That oxytocin gets produced in the, in the brain when we give and it's a it's a it's a chemical in the that the body produces that actually lessens stress that allows us to cope with stress in a very different way and she you know, she just goes through she says essentially giving is a miracle drug with no side effects for health and well-being. Indeed, we're so wired for it that our genes reward us for giving and punish us when we don't. That's that's pretty heavy. The study from UCLA found that participants whose happiness was mostly hedonic or about consuming had high levels of biological markers that promote inflammation which is linked to conditions like diabetes and cancer. 
Those whose happiness was based on service to others had health profiles showing reduced levels of these markers. Of course, we all experience a mix of both kinds of happiness, but our body's internal system is subtly pushing us to augment the kind based on giving. There is no other drug, as Ariana Huffington said, more powerful than the willingness to open that space in your heart to give time, to give service, to give money if that's what's necessary, to give attention, to give love, to give compassion, to let all of those things flow in your heart. Now I love what the Dalai Lama said. He said, if you're really selfish and you really want to be happy, develop selflessness. Because that's what's going to make you happy. If everything you give and do is a calculation of what's coming back, that makes your world really small, really narrow, really constricted. If everything you do and say and think and breathe and act is to bring benefit to all of the beings with whom you share this planet, you are going to be so happy you'll jump out of your skin. I promise you. And what's ironic is the more you give, the more the blessings flow. And, you know, that may be kind of metaphysical, but it's also true. It's real. Because we are part of the flow of this amazing, mysterious universe. There's a, there's a fact about the amount of oxygen in the universe that if it, if it, it I think it's 21, is there a scientist here? I think it's like 21% oxygen in the, um, in the, in the air. And if it went to like 21.1%, the whole, the whole planet would just burn up. And if it went to 20.9%, 20, it would collapse in. The universe is this amazingly generous place that we occupy. And so do we want to be in harmony with that? Or do we want to see ourselves as some isolated, narrowly interested being that is not in harmony? And see for yourself. So when you practice giving, not only here, but in your life, to a coworker or a friend who needs your ear or a child who wants your attention, or a friend who needs your support. Really pay attention to what that feels like. Pay attention to the generous heart and pay attention to the ungenerous heart. Pay attention to the heart that doesn't want to give. And really make your own conclusion about which way you want to cultivate 
your heart. So I'm going to stop there to give us a little time for discussion. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your attention. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I have a story. Um, Many years ago, I uh, used to work sometimes in Los Angeles, and I landed at at the airport from Los Angeles, really tired one night. And uh, a couple came up to me and gave me the story that you hear a lot, which is, you know, this happened or I lost the wall. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. I don't remember what the precise details of the story were. I lost my, we lost our wallet. We need to get home. We don't have money. Could you give us some money? I said, how much do you need? They said, $10. It was a long time ago. (laughs) And I looked in my wallet, and sure enough, that's all I had was $10. And I stood there saying, this could be a scam, right? And then the other voice said, they could be here for a long time with everybody thinking it's a scam when it's not. And I had a roommate at the time in the city, so I thought, well, when I take the cab, hopefully, I thought my roommate would be there and she'd be able to pay for the cab, because that's the $10 was for the cab. It was a very long time. (laughs) And um, so I gave them the $10. And in the moment, I felt really great. I thought, this is really, this feels really good. This feels like the right thing to do. And I was totally aware of the fact that it could be a scam. And I got into the cab, and I looked down on the seat, and there was a $10 bill there. And for me, that was like the universe saying to me, well done. Well done. So the question is, which heart do you want to go with? You have two strabes in the heart. You have the heart that, you know, that's constantly looking for how, ways in which people are going to take advantage of you. And what does that feel like? It feels tight. It feels defenses, defensive. And when you tighten your heart and your heart is defended against that, your heart is defended against everything. It's not like you can, de- put, you can armor the heart And then, you know, you open it up for the good stuff, right? No, the heart gets the habit of being armored so it doesn't let anything in. All right, so are you going to go with that heart? Or are you going to go with the one that feels some compassion for somebody in trouble? My husband and I were at a gas station in Massachusetts last week. And... uh, we pulled into a bay next to a car that had several people in it who happened to be African-American. And uh, I looked over, and there was a cop standing there. Well, I'd seen the police car, but I, you know, he was a state trooper, actually. And what I thought was interesting is, you know, I've traveled in Massachusetts a lot because IMS is up there and I go and teach there and do some other work there. And I'd never really seen a state trooper with his hat on, you know, with the tall hat with the strap around it. And he was standing at the window of this car. 
And I, so being a lawyer, you know, I kind, I kind of sense that kind of danger. And so I walked over to see what he was saying to them. And I heard him say something like, the tank is bone dry. And one of the occupants of the car said, yes, sir. And, you know, so I thought, oh my God, they're here without any gas. And then, but he continued, it was like, so how many people are in the car? Got any drugs? I thought, well, this is interesting, right? And uh, um, whose car is this? Well, let me run the registration. So I asked somebody, one of them, and I said, what, what's going on? They said, well, we were traveling, the transmission on the car was, went, and we had to stop, and it took every penny we had. And so we traveled as far as we could with the gas that was in the car, and we stopped at the gas station and asked the gas man if we could figure out a way to get our car gassed so we could get on our way home and that we would figure out a way to pay him. And what he did was he called the cop. And I thought, well, look at this, right? So, you know, maybe he was an employee and didn't feel that he could, you know, give his employer's thing. But, you know, so that was the first instance of a, a, an opportunity for generosity. And then when the cop was called, there was a second instance, a second opportunity for generosity. And both of them turned it down. So I, I don't want to sing John's and my praises and say, you know, we gave them what we had, etc., etc., etc. But I felt the freeze in my own heart at what was happening. And I was so frozen and, and I felt the trauma that these people were undergoing because they were in a tough spot, right? They just needed help. And they were being cross-examined. They just needed help. They had a little dog and some kids in the car, right? And I, it's, it's like, it's a story that happens over and over and over and over again in our society. Do you weep for that? And do you want to help that? Or do you say, well, you know, it's their problem. Maybe they were scamming the gas station guy. Which heart do you want to occupy? Which one? That's up, it's up to you. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of generosity. Receiving graciously is part of generosity because you are allowing the opportunity for someone else to be generous. And so you're joined together in that moment of giving and there's no difference between the giver and the receiver. You know, and if you're giving with a sense of superiority, it's not generosity. You're giving, but it's not generosity. If you're giving with a sense of humility and compassion, that's generosity. That's okay. Beautiful, 
beautiful. Well, really pay attention to those opportunities and those moments when you do feel good giving, because that will, that will spur the heart on to making that choice. And there was a, one question over here. On, unfortunately, that's the only time we only have for this one. Oh, Michelle, be careful. Hi. So the so the the feeding of the generous heart. So so giving. Just the act of giving is not necessarily the act of gen, a, a manifestation of generosity, and that's why the heart of generosity is needed to be cultivated. So we can give. You know, if we have a hundred million dollars and we give somebody a hundred dollars, to them it may feel like a lot of money, but to us it was like, hey. Right, but if we have a hundred dollars and somebody comes and says, "Can you give me?" or you have ten and somebody says, "Can you give me ten dollars?" and you give it to them, that's generosity, right? So we're not leaving our wisdom at the door, you know. And maybe it was foolish of me to actually give away everything. Maybe I should have said, "Well, I give you five, and I'll keep five so that I can make sure I have at least a little bit of money to to go home." So, the, so there's, we're not asking anyone to leave wisdom at the door. As a matter of fact, our practice is about the cultivation and the development of wisdom. And the beautiful thing about the Dharma is that we're constantly refining our understanding. So when we talk about generosity, we can talk about it in a really kind of gross way. And my talk was a, a bit of a you know, gross way of talking about it because we only have X number of minutes. But the practice is refined because it's a, it's a moment to moment to moment awareness of how the heart is responding. And it's okay if sometimes you give foolishly because then you learn something from that if you do it in, with awareness. And then sometimes there is the wisdom and the clarity and the love and the compassion that informs the giving. That's generosity. So, so our practice becomes more and more and more and more refined, less and less and less and less coarse. And even this practice of generosity, is true, it's true of that too. That you're recognizing, oh, so... It's not always good to just hand somebody some money, right? If I see a drug addict and they come up and say, Can you, I'm not going to give them $100, right? I might say, do you need something to eat? I'll go and buy you a hamburger if that's what they eat. I don't eat it, but that's what they eat so that I'll buy you something to eat, you know? So maybe that's the wisdom that informs the giving and that becomes generosity. It might not be generous at all. If I just want to give him the money so I can feel generous, that's definitely not generosity. That's some kind of self-centered ego that wants to feel good, right? So it's a tricky edge, right? What's going on here? What's going on in this heart and mind when I make the decision to give? And how... And is it, and am I being really generous in spending the time and the energy 
to consider what might be beneficial in this situation? Or am I just giving because I'm in a hurry and, okay, here's the $5 or here's the quarter or whatever it is we, we can afford to give. That's not generosity, that's giving. It's not generosity. So that's why I like the distinction between the two words. And it's important. And so, if, so, can you, so what I challenge you all to do is take it up as a practice. And it practices like, it's like any other practice where you, you plumb the depths more and more and more and more. The more you practice it, the more you see, oh, yeah, this is an issue. Wow, how do I work with that? Right? Oh, and I thought it was just, oh, I should give when I'm asked. No. It's how much can I afford to give? What does this person really need? You know, and of course it depends on the amount of time you have. And are you willing to, to dedicate that time? You may be generous with your money, but not with your time. You may be generous with your time, but not with your love. You may be generous with your love, but not with your compassion. You may be generous with your compassion, but not with your wisdom. It's the whole enchilada. Right? So beautiful that you recognize it. Really beautiful. And to work with it is a real, it's a real practice. So I challenge you all to really be, become aware of all of the opportunities every single moment for generosity and giving. Really recognize them. And when you make a decision to give or not to give, really know what that feels like and know why. Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it because I can't let go? Is it that it's just a habit? What's going on? What's going on? And it's, it's, not like, it's, it's like every other practice that we do. We're constantly asking, Who, what is this? Who am I? Is there, is there an I behind this? And what's, what's really driving the decisions I'm making in my life? Are they, am I just on automatic? Or am I really understanding what is needed in this moment for me? Because you're included in your generosity with, by all means. What, what, what is needed by me? What is needed by the person in front of me? Can I afford in this moment to give it? Right? And what can I afford? You know, maybe somebody here with, with that Donna box, I, I, we sometimes get coins in that Donna box. And I appreciate that just as much as a $100 bill, which we sometimes get, or a $50 bill. Because I, that I, my imagination says that person wanted to give something and that's all they could give. Right? So we're not judging it by the size of the gift as the receiver, but as the giver, we are seeing how we make our decisions. Thank you. So let's just sit for a moment. I'm sorry we've gone over time. So reflect for yourself as, the, as this month goes by on your own practice of generosity and see it as a practice, one that is developing 
so that wherever you are on the spectrum for yourself is okay. And the understanding that all of these states of heart are cultivatable, developable. The transformation is always possible. That's the message, the deep message of the Buddha. <laughs>